our scripture reading for today. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. Uh, in the Red Pew Bibles, we are in 1006. I'll give you a moment to get there. Again, Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkle of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We are going to be going through Hebrews chapter 9. So um, a little bit more theology, a little bit more heady, so uh, you can put your thinking caps on. That's just how we do it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so here we are. Chapter 9, you're going to find that the author continues on this vein of solidifying the superiority of Jesus Christ and the new covenant over the old covenant that was written. And so what the writer is doing is he is contrasting between old covenant and new covenant. And so one of the main subjects that we're going to be talking about today is uh, this difference between guilty conscience in the old covenant and in the new. Um, I think this is something that all of us are familiar with. Yes, guilty consciences. Everyone's experienced this. Um, if you haven't experienced this, then just go home and don't go to church next week and we'll call you and we'll give you one. Okay. Um, but we all know what this feels like, right? We all know what... Um, we, this is something we can all relate to. And any mentally healthy individual uh, will experience a range of feelings, and guilt is one of those feelings that we have all felt, and I'm not making a judgment on whether that is a good feeling or a bad feeling. I'm just saying that we've experienced this feeling. Any healthy individual, mentally healthy individual, also has a conscience. And it's this ability that allows us to question between what we deem is right and what we deem is wrong. It lets us reason our morality and even think through what morality from God is, is for us. And we kind of just determine what is right and wrong between those things. It's, it's how we've been created so that we have a capability of whether we violate this sense of conscience within us. And this, what, this is what makes us moral beings. And that we can choose between what is right and what is wrong. And then when we violate that conscience of after determining what is right and wrong, that's when this sense of guilt enters, which is a very, very complicated feeling because attached to it are other feelings like judgment or unworthiness or shame. Attached to it are emotions like anger or fear or terror. Attached to it are actions like hiding or medicating or self-harm. So this is a very, very complicated feeling that has all these feelings, emotions, and actions attached to it. 
how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant deal with conscience is really, really different. Let's skip down to verse 9 here, and this is uh, symbolic for the present age. It reads this, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So this Old Covenant could not perfect the conscience. Now skip down to verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That this new covenant can purify our conscience. And it's not simply just this psychological thing that happens within our conscience that we can think that we can overcome this thing for ourselves. It's an understanding of what Christ did for us. It's a realization that the Word of God frees us from these troubled consciences because our sins are forgiven and God remembers those sins no more. Chapter 8, verse 12, we covered that last week. You can look at that, but this is what it reads. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Guilty conscience no more. Whenever we go to God with that conscience. The guilty conscience isn't there for us to neglect it or pretend that it's not there or ignore it or, or debilitate us or run from it or create any other negative outcome. What the guilty conscience can do is lead us to God. And the first 10 verses of chapter 9 gives us the, this picture of how the old covenant was inadequate and how the new covenant is adequate. So let's take a look at the first five verses. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place. Um, we're going to be going through different slides of this curtain just to give us pictures of, of what it's like. Okay? Verse 4, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot, cannot now speak in detail. We're given how things were in the past, the, the old covenant, that they were inadequate, that there were many more details of than what were shared in, in these five verses, which is what the author is saying in verse 5. Of these things, we, we cannot now speak in detail. There's a lot more attached to this. But the point of the author's writing is to point us to Christ in the new covenant as the superior answer to the old. So he lays out briefly what was divinely prescribed in the old, and that the new in Christ is the fulfillment of this prescription. And it's not saying that the old covenant is insignificant. What the author is pointing out is how the old was this shadow of the new, which is the reality of heaven. Then in verses 6 through 10, we're given a picture of the present time. Verse 6, these preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. 
But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing." Verse 9, we've read this already. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So we're given these descriptions of the sanctuary. We're given, um, we're given the limitations of the sanctuary. And maybe we need to be reminded of just the feelings behind how the high priest was dealing with all these emotions and feelings here. Because if you can put yourselves in the high priest's uh, flip-flops, shoes, or whatever they were wearing at the time, we're given this picture of God's holiness. And it's so important for people to realize the majesty, the holiness of God, which is key when we come to worship God. That God is not simply our bro. And so when we enter into our sanctuary, I wonder how many times we actually enter in with a sense of reverential fear, a sense of respect, a sense that God is just not my homie, like God is God. And so when the high priest enters into the place there, he knew. That's why his, his ankle is tied with a rope and there's bells ringing on it because at each step he takes they can hear it because if the steps stop they know he fell dead and we got to pull that guy out right and so there's a seriousness there's a reverence there's a respect given there um, that when the high priest went into that holy place everybody knew it he did it once a year and they were going to he was going to go to intercede for them so they were all aware that he's going to enter into that place and we hope that he comes out. And so the high priest, if you can imagine, when he prayed, he prayed like he meant it. Because his life depended on it. And he brought blood to atone for himself first because he himself was a sinful person. And so he brings blood for himself and then he can then minister on the behalf of others. But if you can just imagine what a fearful time it was to enter into the presence of the awesome and holy God that we are worshiping this morning. And he also realized that not everyone had direct access like he did. That he was the only one that had direct access to God in this old covenant way of doing things, which is a really, really big difference between the old and the new. That the old restricted access to God, and even though the other high priests were in this other section, this other room, only the high priests were allowed to enter into this Holy of Holies, and it was restricted to everyone else. People looked to the high priest for access to God back then. That's, that's how they felt that they were going to be atoned for those sins. And things have changed quite drastically now in this new covenant. But then sometimes people still live as in the old because they are looking to people who are working as religious clergymen rather than looking to Jesus themselves when each of us has access to God now because of the new covenant. The new covenant allows all of us to have access to God, that we can all know God for ourselves, to have our consciences 
cleansed in a very personal way. We don't have to wait once a year for the high priest who goes alone to God, that it's Jesus who entered in, not simply a person who provided a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. He provided a sacrifice for sins as the incarnate God who sacrificed himself for our sins. That now we can now enter into, with confidence into a holy place with God. And so this idea is really revolutionary for those stuck in this kind of old covenant way of thinking, thinking about this restricted access to now this all access with Jesus, where we can all go before God. That this curtain that kept everyone else out was torn in two. And the high priest was not the only one to be allowed to go in there anymore. That the old didn't give us access. It only gave this high priest access. And the old's cleansing was partial, according to verse 10. The old had these limitations with these atoning sacrifices and washings that had to be done over and over and over again. And it wasn't until this curtain was torn that that separated from God that it allowed access. Because it's not this physical curtain that kept us from God. What it was, was a sinful heart that kept us from God. And it wasn't simply access, but that it's a realization of one's own sinfulness before a holy God, knowing that God is to be revered and feared. That sin has its consequences and that Christ is the one who bridges this gap between God and us. That it wasn't a religion that did that. It wasn't a curtain that did that. It wasn't people that did that. It was Jesus Christ. Christ who cleanses us of our guilt, of that guilty conscience, who gives us all access, who gives us complete cleansing, who pardons our sins that isn't limited by time or frequency as it was with a high priest. That Jesus give this, gives this to us once and for all through this new covenant Freed from guilt once and for all. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. This phrase is really, really incredible. But when Christ appeared. You know, all this stuff was happening the way that it was. But when he appeared, it changed everything. Everything radically altered when Christ appeared. And it wasn't because these, these priests over here were unfaithful with their practices, but they, they offered the same sacrifices that, that couldn't take away sin eternally. It had to be done over and over again, and each time it was temporary. And this is the trouble about relying on people, that it's temporary. And so you can see how people get frustrated with the church. Or how people get frustrated with people in the church because the reliance is upon the church or the reliance is upon the people of the church rather than on God. But when we fall on the mercy and the grace of Christ and we receive everlasting harmony with God and we realize this, it's glorious. And thank God for his appearance that appeared at the right time, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Now, skipping on to verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We're going to break down some of the phrases within verse 12 here. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. That first phrase there, he entered once for all into the holy places, meaning Jesus entered heaven himself. This is written about in chapter 8, repeated here in chapter 9. And in verse 24, it reads this, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands like the holy of holies, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Jesus entering into heaven is the emphasis of chapter 9 to show that Jesus Christ represents his people who now benefit through his work of redemption given them eternal access to the presence of God, not the way that it used to be. That Christ returned to the presence of his Father to now advocate for us. Now the high priests, they were entering a type of heaven. We talked about typology a few weeks ago. But then Jesus entered the reality of heaven. Here's the shadow, here's the reality. The high priest couldn't bring anyone with him. They could only go in once a year. Christ brings all of us with him. He enters at any time. And now we are waiting for Christ's return. And here, people were waiting for the high priest's return, but they didn't know if it was because if he'd returned dead or not. They didn't know how he'd return. And so the difference here is that the high priest will, will have to go back again to offer an atoning sacrifice. He'd come out, and then the year after, he'd have to do it again. And this would have to happen over and over again. But here's Christ, through the curtain, sacrifice once and for all. And then he is saying he's coming back. But when he's coming back, he's not coming back to offer another sacrifice. That when he's coming back, he's coming to bring us with him. And we're going with him. And this is the reality of Christ's sacrifice. This has to be done over and over again. This one, once and done, coming back. He's not coming back addressing sin anymore. He's coming back to bring us with him. Now, how was Christ able to go to heaven to the presence of God? How come he does this, but like this high priest couldn't do that? Well, Christ is from heaven. He's able to go back to heaven. By means of his own blood. Back in verse 12, by means of his own blood. Verse 14 tells us that Christ offered himself without blemish to God. Verse 26 tells us he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. No other high priest could do that. Their blood is not perfect. They are tainted with sin. When they entered into the Holy of Holies, they had to atone for their own sins first and then for everyone else. Christ sinless nothing to atone for it's one and done and in Christ's sacrifice that's what that's all that was needed while the priest here had to do it year after year offering animal sacrifices this shadow of the high priest sacrifices year after year showing the need for a perfect sacrifice because we're going to have to do this the rest of our lives for eternity how are we going to do this we need something else. We need a different way to, to do this. And so these sacrifices are just a shadow, and they're pointing to the one who could bear our sins once and for all and show that all these other sacrifices, they were just temporary while Christ is for eternity. 
All the sacrifices here were just types. They were just shadows of the sacrifice Jesus made of himself, this reality, the reality of the shadows. All the typology, he is the actual type, pointing to eternal redemption, which brings us to the last phrase in verse 12, eternal redemption that I want to talk about. Redemption is to set free by paying a price, by paying a ransom. And so by nature, we are all slaves to sin. And we are set free by the blood of Christ, his redemption. And this redemption is no longer temporary like it was through previous sacrifices. No longer something that has to be done over and over again, but a perfect redemption, that it is done. An eternal redemption that happened on the cross where Jesus provided total pardon where we are completely cleansed of our sins, redeemed to God himself, redeemed for God's purposes to share this good news of being set free from sin, that we are redeemed, to actually live in this freedom and not slaves to sin. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. In a will, does everyone have a will? This is an important thing, especially with families. If you have a family if you're married, you have a spouse, please have a will. Get this done. Yes? Um, if you haven't done a will, just add um, Albert Lee to it, and then we're cool. <laughs> but when there's a will, there's three parts to a will, right? There are beneficiaries, my children, the benefactor, me, and then there's the bequest, what we're actually leaving. There's three parts to a will. Here's the thing about a will. My kids don't get anything until I'm dead. The will is activated by death. The bequest doesn't happen until it's death, until the death happens. So it is the death that sets the will in motion. So looking at the will that God has for us, there are beneficiaries, all of us here. There's the benefactor, Jesus Christ. There's the bequest this eternal redemption. We don't get it until he died. He died. You and I have eternal redemption as beneficiaries. We get the bequest. We get Christ's presence upon his return along with the presence of the present Holy Spirit, that death was the necessary plan for this new covenant atonement in order for the will to be activated. And what the old covenant did was prove that there is a need for this perfect sacrifice. And so these guys over here are thinking like, man, we got to do this year after year. If there's only a way that we don't have to do that anymore, how can that be? And there is. Christ. 
You don't have to do that anymore. Over and over again. He is the one that took the sins of the world and it is finished. Verse 17. For a will takes effect only at death. Since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is how the new covenant is ratified. And this covenant was sanctified by blood. Where there is the death of an innocent for the provision of the guilty, this is what Christ did for us. That there is no sanctification without blood. That there is no forgiveness without blood. And those familiar with the old covenant completely understood this. This is why blood is so important the first century worshiper would be really, really familiar with this as they participated in these ceremonies. They understood the significance of their sin. They walked in fear into the temple and they participated in this and, and they knew that the cleansing had to happen through sacrifice over and over again, pointing them to a perfect sacrifice, a mediator to usher in this new covenant once and for all. And we all understand how a will works, that it only takes effect upon a death. Moving on to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, holy of holies, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, the reality, the real thing. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, like these animals, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's done. Now this word appear appears in verses 24, 26, and 28. And in verse 24, Christ appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. Now this was something that has already happened. He appears before God. And then in verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, which happened in 2,000 years ago, but it continues to happen now for everyone who presently puts their faith in Christ to set them, set them free from sin. It is happening now. And then we get to verse 28. Christ will appear for a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That he is returning. There is a reappearance. If you're going to hear anything, please hear this this morning. No matter how disinterested you may be, because maybe someone brought, drug you in here like a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something like that, you're like, you're only here because you're interested in someone you're dating or whatever it may be, or because your mom and dad drug you in here or your son or daughter drug you, no matter what it is, I need to let you know 
No one denies the appearance of Christ 2,000 years ago. If you believe that, you're crazy. He's in the history books, right? Nobody denies the appearance of Jesus. And he's saying he's reappearing. He's going to reappear whether you like it or not. No matter how much you're disinterested, no matter what you think, he is appearing. Just like you had no say in him appearing 2,000 years ago, you have no say in his reappearance. It's going to happen. You will not be ready for Christ's reappearance if you don't realize his first appearance to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Where Christ appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, that you're, without the believing of these appearances, you won't believe in his reappearance either. And there is mercy and grace to believe Jesus Christ's first appearance. But this second reappearance is not going to deal with that. It is not going to deal with your sin. What this is for is for those who already believe to experience salvation of Christ. And so the all-important question is, have you received by faith this first appearance of Jesus Christ? If you haven't, the reappearance makes no difference to you. It doesn't mean anything. Christ appeared once for all. That God appeared in the flesh. The book of Hebrews' emphasis is the death of Jesus Christ in this unrepeated, once-for-all atoning sacrifice. The whole letter is about this. Once for all is repeated in verses 12, 26, 28. And this is contrasting this yearly sacrifice all the time of the high priest. And it serves as a reminder of the need of this cleansing within us that we all have this dirt in our hearts and in our minds. That we have all this stuff in us that only he can cleanse. And so the sacrifices continue to point towards the inner person of us, to show us how much we need to be cleansed, how much we need to be washed, because we all have that stuff in us that needs the cleansing. And these sacrifices pointed people forward to show that what was happening here is not enough. It's not enough. Because right after you kill another animal, the very next day, you're off doing something. Or it, an animal was killed for a supposed sin that you dealt with and you didn't deal with it. But then you just accepted it anyway. And then it had to be done over and over again. Never to be cleansed. Until he appeared once for all. And for all those who acknowledge his first appearance, now we wait for his reappearance. We await eagerly for the reappearance through the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Offered once to bear the sins of many. This was God's divine plan all along. God's plan was for us to be sanctified to love. That we are redeemed so that we can offer our best, our entire being, to not live in the shadows, to live in reality, to love the living God and to love one another. 
Because by nature, we are very limited. Our love is very limited. God's love, he's able to love the most unlovable people. This is a really hard thing to do. Some of you are very unlovable. And yet he loves you. I mean, this is crazy, isn't it? Like, like your, your children, it's probably the closest you can get to like, loving an unlovable being. Right? That's, until they get to teenagers and you're like, forget it, forget it, this is it, no more. But like spouses, man, sometimes you guys are unlovable and you guys do not want to love each other. But Jesus Christ already did appear. It's once for all. He, he, and then he promises to reappear. But it's not to deal with sin this time, but, but for those of us who are eagerly awaiting his arrival, who know why he appeared the first time. You know, life is just so, so, so temporary. Therefore, it is so ordinary. Think about this. How many of you know the name of your great grandparents, all of them, not just one, not like a, your mom's favorite grandmother or something like that. Like, how many of you know? And that's probably because of the, that's probably because of like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or something like that, right? Like you, like before that stuff, like who knows these things? What I'm trying to draw the conclusion is, you see how important, unimportant, insignificant all of us are? Because our great-grandchildren aren't even going to know our names. And yet, without us, they don't exist. <laughs> but they won't even know us. And I didn't even get a penny from any of them. They didn't even leave me anything. Like, what kind of great-grandparent are you? Right? So, it's like, we're so insignificant. It's so ordinary. It's so meaningless. Until you think of Jesus Christ's appearance and how he gives life everlasting which is extraordinary. It's extraordinary because you and I will never be forgotten because we're written in the book of life, remembered forever by name, that every hair on our head is counted and that I'm losing hundreds by the day. Like, I don't know, but it's happening. But he keeps track of all that arithmetic. It's incredible. Now, here's the really, really important question for you this morning. And this, it's, this is for even all of us who believe in Christ, because this is a really important thing. Can you identify a time when Jesus Christ appeared in your life? That first appearance. If you can't identify that, how are you to recognize a reappearance? If you don't even have the initial appearance. And so... This is so important that the rest of our life depends on the reality of this very important question. Is if we can identify a time that Jesus Christ appeared in our life. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for all the pictures, the types, the shadows, that ultimately point us to the reality of Jesus Christ who's seated 
with you, Heavenly Father, in heaven, in your very presence. Lord, I pray that you would have us be ready for your reappearance, that those who don't even know of your appearance acknowledge that, realize that, that they don't have to struggle over and over again, that they can indeed be free from all the things that enslave them in sin, all those hidden things, all those secret things, all those dark things can be laid out before you because you see all of it anyway and that you died for all of those things once and for all and so God, may we live in that freedom, may we live in that redemption that you paid our ransom, that we were held captive, enslaved to sin and you paid for that. So Lord, I pray that we would be able to live in that freedom. And I ask, God, that you would help us to acknowledge this and that when we enter into your presence, that it is indeed filled with reverence and respect and fear. In Jesus' name, amen.